we're not dumbing it down for our audience. We're breaking it down into a way that people that don't play the piano can play it. You know, if I sat down and said, okay, Jim's never played the piano before and I'm going to sit down and talk to him like he's a 30 year concert pianist and, and, and think he'll just get it. You're not right. You're going to be frustrated. You're like, this is stupid. I don't want to learn. Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. All right, we're back in the the podcast studio again. Um, what's going on? Uh, I I I pre-planned an eight before the podcast, so I oh, there we go. Eight. So it's not lunch talk. Yeah, uh, although I, I have to tell you, is is it a is it a northeastern thing, or maybe it's a Philly thing, or a Pennsylvania thing? This whole concept of stuffed sandwiches. Is it Permant? They're Permanti brothers. Permantis is Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, they, it's they're it's, big into stuffed sandwiches at Permanti, right? Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a Pittsburgh thing. Okay. Well, I made. I got some uh, chicken salad sandwich mix from Costco, and mm-hmm. some uh, uh, croissants. And it's good just as a sandwich, but I'm like, no, this like needs a different texture or layer. So I threw some frozen fries in the air fryer and put the fries Ooh. on top of the chicken salad sandwich. I'm in the croissant and it's just so good. Yeah. <laughs> we need to stuff fries in more sandwiches. I, I, I do agree with that. The one thing though, that, that I know is this area and I grew up with, I don't know how regional it is or how broad it is, but like stuffing potato chips in, oh, yeah. uh, in a cold sandwich. So I didn't, I don't know if that was a thing, but man, maybe eight or nine years ago, I was addicted. Like I was going several times a week to Jimmy John's to get the number nine, the the Italian, uh, I don't know what they call it, but it's like the East coast Italian. And then I would get a bag of the, uh, jalapeno, uh, kettle chips and I would dump them on top of the sandwich and smash it all down. Like, this is the most incredible thing. It's like, gives it a crunch and it's so good. Potato chips on san- on deli sandwiches. If you haven't done it, you have to try it. It's it's adds incredible depth. So, yeah, like I, I mean, like my God, like that. Just the thought of that, like <laughs> the, the sound, the texture. I mean, yeah. it takes me back to like grade school, where you sit at the lunch table and just <laughs> potato like, chips and. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think I'm thinking that's where a lot of stuff. If I remember back to the lunchroom in grade school, I'm like, we were doing weird stuff with food, right? And then I think that people grew up and, and made they grew up and like they're like, you know what? We should make a restaurant about putting fries in sandwiches because we love doing that in, in elementary school. And then yes. people are like, yeah, this is really good. Yeah, yeah. I'm not complaining. I'm I'm a fan. So. I am a fan. Well, we're back. How uh, how was the break? Are you back into the swing of work? 
Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely back into back into the swing of work now, and you know, like the, the the year is, is is started off quickly. There have been past years where people come back, and then like the first three weeks, people are just trying to figure out what to do. Um, not this year. Like yeah. everybody is like both internal within our organization and our team and clients alike. Like everybody, for some reason, like this year, it's it's all about. Um, getting you're off to a very quick start yeah yeah i felt it too um and it's good um you know i this was the first year that i think i really took time off um between christmas and new year uh which was good um but by the end of it i'm like i gotta i gotta get going i gotta do something because i'm literally <laughs> just like i'm just gonna lay on the couch and chill and yeah so but. i mean with, with the with the move and all I'll be honest with you, like it was it was a very busy break in between doing the, the fun stuff, the three of us, you know, with our extended family, the the normal holiday stuff. I was also in the process of painting and cleaning and starting mm-hmm. to move out. So so it it was it was crazy, like and then just coming right back into work. It it took me a couple extra days this year to really get back into into that groove and that mindset. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, after you've taken some time off, it uh, takes a bit to wind it back up again. But yeah, I, f- I feel it too. Lots lots going on. Lots of things to do. Um, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. So. Like, is there anything in particular that you're noticing, like any particular themes or, or trends in conversations that you're having? Uh, not necessarily specific themes. Um, I just think people are wanting to do more um you know with conference season starting to ramp up in person there's lots of talk i think you know people have missed being together um and finding opportunities to to collaborate and do stuff in in person be interesting to see you know we've talked to adobe summit and other events uh still not sure like you know are these things gonna go are are people gonna go and so there's kind of lots of talk around what are we doing with our our travel schedules and things so i just think in general people um people are motivated to do do some good stuff there's also a lot of i guess unease too i'm i'm feeling you know with the economic landscape lots of lots of unease where you know we see i guess i want to call it copycat layoffs you know it's like well facebook is laying people off well salesforce is laying people off so we should lay people off which has has people um uncomfortable and you know i think as part of that uncomfortableness i think it's motivating people to get out there and showcase their skills and their value and kind of make sure that they have options so seeing lots of people taking the opportunity to make sure that they're using it as a motivator rather than as a depressing type of event yeah i mean definitely the the layoffs in both december and and into into January, it, it, it was definitely um, I like how you worded it, copycats. Well, if they're doing it, we're going to do it too. And you know, it's just it's it's crazy. And it, it seems like the the common theme with all of them, or at least the spin that they're trying to put on it, is is well, we hired too fast, so we need to quickly lay off fast just to 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 appease executive management appease uh wall street mm. shareholders and and everything so like it, it, and everybody's using the same story we just hired yeah. too fast and the right. 
the economic landscape is quickly changing. So we need to, we, we need to quickly adjust. Yeah. And I think they're feeling the backlash of it. And sadly, I think they're, they're coming up with some creative ways to make attrition look more organic. Um, I've seen lots of companies being heavy handed with return to office. And I think a big part of that is, Hey, here's an opportunity to cut a huge part of our workforce because they're not going to want to come back to the office. So let's just be heavy handed on making it a requirement. So it doesn't look like we're letting all these people go. They're making the choice to leave. But really, I think they're designing a lot of these things to further and further cut, cut the workforce. Um, yeah, I mean, we, I, I made this and I'm, we're going way down a tangent here, but I made this uh, post on, on LinkedIn last night about, you know, if I'm a, if I'm at a company like Salesforce and the executive leadership is out there saying it, that remote employees are a problem, they're, they're, they're a drain on the company. It's like, I don't know that I'd be working very hard. I'd be using my time to find an exit plan and a new job. If I was at one of these companies and one of my friends chimed in and said, Hey, you know, I get what you're saying, but two wrongs don't make a right. And, you know, I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, I was a bit flippant in my remark, but really, should we be giving our best? Because is that giving the wrong message to these leaders that their behavior is okay? And I've done it throughout my career. Like I've had some shitty bosses, yet I continued to work at an elite level. And looking back on them, like, wait a minute. Yeah, I should have my standards. You know, I, I shouldn't, you know, compromise my standards, but by continuing to operate an elite level, is that sending the wrong message that, oh, by the way, your actions are okay because they're not okay. And I think that, you know, if, if we do that through this trend and we say, hey, you know, the employee has to be the bigger person, we're not really sending a message to these leaders that are making, in my opinion, some really crappy decisions about how they're leading their teams. Yeah, and and I, I love how they they say remote the remote employees are, are are a drain and they don't bring anything to actually back that up right they, they, they make this statement so you're also talking about bad behavior it's the, the we'll, we'll prove it yeah show it um show where where the employees are a drain or they're holding the the, the company back yeah and, and i don't think they can and i think a big part of it is is that you know, for most of these big companies, they don't want autonomous employees working for them. They want drones. They want people yeah. to go in and just do what they're 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 told. And I think they reluctantly went down this path of remote and unlocking the autonomy that remote gives because they were forced into it because of COVID. And now coming out of it, they're like, nope, we have to take the power back. And it's sad to see. I was hoping that the the company leadership would see that the office wasn't working before and what was missing was trusting employees and providing them autonomy. And, you know, regardless, it's regardless of it's in office remote or hybrid, it's not about location. It's about how we work, you know? And I just think these as, as financially incredibly successful as these companies are making billions of dollars a year, they seem so ignorant when it comes to just the basics of how to treat people humanely. And, I was hoping this would cause them to rethink things. And clearly from what they're signaling to the market, it didn't. Well, and I think in, in a way you're seeing the, the Peter principle apply. Um, mm -hmm. The, the idea that, you know, everyone eventually gets promoted mm -hmm. above their, you know, beyond their skill level. And we've talked about it time and time again. It's one of the reasons why 
they want employees in in the office, if if they you know the the excuse they use is um, creativity and collaboration. Right. Well, if that were really the case, offices would be completely designed differently. That's right. You would have actual like, creative working space and not a giant cube farm. Mm-hmm. Because I'll tell you this: cubes do not, you know, help bring about. Um, uh, collaborative work. No. So they, they use this, you know, it's about um, being collaborative when the thing is, is they don't know how to manage. Yeah. Like, I, I think if you look at your majority of your executives out there, they don't know how to manage a remote workforce. That's right. Why? Because it's hard. It, it <laughs> is a very difficult thing because it's very easy if you're some mid-level manager to go over, tap people on the shoulders, like, Hey, did you see this or how's that? Or walk around the office and oh, people are typing away on keyboards. We're good. <laughs> that, that's right. And that that's kind of my feedback is we're 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 pretending that they know how to manage in office. They don't. Yeah. They're just they're just kind of defaulting to this lowest common denominator of are you working hard? Well, then you need to work harder. You know, are you in line? Well, you need to get back in line. And it's funny, my first job out of college, do you know what they called the area I worked in? Because I didn't have a cube, I just had a desk. Bullpen bullpen <laughs> literally we're we're like penned in like animals in this yeah. you know cage the, so that they can keep control of us and like this isn't leadership this isn't management you know and so i think it's a big problem when we're contrasting remote and and in office is that we we pretend that in office was working and it wasn't working it's not about the location it's about leadership and leadership isn't being a micromanager walking around saying is jim in his desk at nine o'clock yeah. We've all had managers that that's what they did, right? We all have. Yeah. Um, so where I was going with like the, the they they can't prove it. They 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 can't prove data is actually my, my segue into our topic today. So <clears throat> what we've been we've been going down uh, you know a, a series of episodes around storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, previously we talked about storytelling with sales. So today I want to talk about storytelling with with data um, and continue the topic there um, because, you know, as we, as we've set the stage with storytelling, storytelling provides a level of familiarity and when it's done well, it conveys a tremendous amount of information in a way that resonates with everybody involved, whether it's one-to-one, one-to-many um, in a large group, in a setting, in, in a small conversation. Um, so data by itself is, is cold and the opposite of what I was just talking about. It's unfamiliar. If you just throw a, uh, a chart up or a table up with it, with, with, with just the raw data, people aren't going to quickly be able to grasp it or, you know, or, or latch onto it. Um, and what that does is people are like discount. It's like, okay, that's great. That the chart looks great and all that table looks like there's a lot of information there, but I don't understand it. So we're going to, to move on. Um, but when data is, is, is part of a story, it can transform a whole conversation. So oh, yeah. being able to tell a story around say your customer, a current customer journey on your website and the checkout flow or the lead flow and, and you um, telling the story of, how customers interact with the site and what the data is telling you about that, that quickly will help bring the other people in the room into 
what you what your ultimate purpose is. Is it a redesign? Is it minor changes or or whatnot? Um, so that's great and all, but how do you actually tell a story with data? Like, um, and, and how do you craft that? And how do you get to that point where maybe like it almost becomes like second nature? Yeah. And it's, I think it's such a complicated topic to unpack, but, but such an important conversation to, to be having, because I think, this is one of those cases where I believe that there are truly some right ways and some wrong ways to go about um, addressing this this topic. So um, I, I guess I'll give you kind of three three examples and we can dive into them um, in the so I'll lay out a spectrum of the wrong way, kind of somewhere in the middle and what I see as the right way. So historically the people that have been in 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 my mind the best at storytelling with data are people that that typically have ulterior motives and are using data in very unethical ways <laughs> and and they've learned that they could use the story around the data to push their narratives to push their biases to convince people of things that may or may not be true. It's like, well, this is the data. It's not me saying it. It's like, well, no, actually you're wrong. The data is saying something else. You've just bastardized it and used story to make it sound more compelling. And that's a a huge concern. Um, And and the reason why taking a more, I I guess what I would describe ethical approach to storytelling is such a critical component. Um, And also such an important thing around data literacy in general, which we've talked quite a bit about and was one of the uh, motivating reasons for writing a children's book is that we have way too many of these bad actors that are using story around data to to really sell misinformation. And that's dangerous. In the middle, I think you have uh, people that aren't, aren't bad actors that truly want to, you know, leverage data in a more let's call it entertaining way. And I think that that's completely fine. Data can be fascinating. We can tell all sorts of really engaging stories with data. However, they use data storytelling as the lead rather than a way as uh, to communicate a difficult subject, which you kind of laid out. The data is unfamiliar. And so typically they'll craft the story and then they'll go find the data to weave into the story. And oftentimes I think that's misguided and is not really treating the data in a fair and ethical way. What I think the right way to do is to be true data analysts and allow the data to tell the story and then for us to craft it into a meaningful way in which it can become um, approachable. Because again, it's it's a topic that can be incredibly, incredibly scary for a lot of people and you know, when you go into a, an executive meeting and start talking about all these numbers, you see their eyes glaze over and they check out, right? It's like, ah, eh, pull up the laptop and start surfing Instagram or something. Um, and so I think that's the, the way that the storytelling needs to be thought about is doing true analysis because, because even as independent analysts, I think we have a hard time not injecting our bias into it, even when we're trying not to. But, you know, allowing the data to really just speak for itself and then figuring out a way that we can use story to communicate the story that the data is telling to people is is really the right approach. And I think it absolutely can be done. Um, you know, I follow this guy on YouTube. Um, he has a channel. I think we may have talked about it on previous episodes uh, called Stand Up Maths, um, in which he talks about math, but he does it in such a 
storytelling amazing way that it takes some pretty complex math topics and without um without bastardizing the concepts he's able to wrap a story around it that someone that may not be a math nerd can understand and that's how we need to be thinking about data you know we we don't need to dumb it down we don't need to talk in just technical lingo we can find a way to respect our audience let the data really stand for itself and find a way to package it in a way that it can be approachable from by people everywhere, not just data nerds. Thinking back, you know, you mentioned there the 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 executives, the eyes starting to glaze over the minute you start to really bring up like um, detailed information. Yeah. Are there any particular stories that that stand out where you, you experience that you had all this great information? And then you start to get into the data and it just doesn't resonate. I mean, I think I've shared, I think I shared a story uh, when I was client side working for an online dating site where I had worked with our internal data sciences team to build some models. And I was super geeked about like, this is so awesome. And um, we had a monthly data readout with the executive team where we talked about kind of the health of our websites and what we are seeing from customer growth and lifetime value. And I brought I brought some of the guys from the data science team. And uh, after the meeting, the CEO pulled me aside into an office and never do that again. <laughs> you know, we keep them in the basement for a reason. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, and it wasn't what they were saying was wrong. Like. I thought it was brilliant and engaging, but to the CMO, to the CIO, to the CEO, like, what the hell are these guys talking about? Like, I have no idea what these guys are talking about. And not that we need to dumb it down for an audience, but we have to know who our audience is and have to package that up in such a way that we use a story to tell the true meaning of the data. I failed to understand that until that day and became crystal clear, like, Jason, you will never do that again. Okay, got you. I understand. (laughs) So it, it, would you say that that's a common pitfall, like getting overexcited about the data and not really thinking about how it's going to go over? Yeah, we see it all. It? Yeah, yeah, we see it all the time. Uh, we see it in companies all the time. And, and and I don't think it's coming from a bad place. I think that, you know, it, there are definitely occasions where you have a few people that like to flex their smarts. So like, I'm going to go in and talk all this data mumbo jumbo and technology just to make it look like I'm smart. That happens. But what happens more often than not is just these people really love what they do and are super excited about the data. And they just want to go talk shop. Um, and they fail to realize that the people they're talking to is not the audience that they talk to every day. It's a completely different audience and they've got to change their message, their, their way of presenting. They have to create that concept of a story around what they're, they're doing. Otherwise you're, you lose people, right? Just think about something that you get super giddy about and you just want to like vomit, you know, all this information out that there's no structure to it. There's no story. There's no beginning, middle and end because you're so excited. And at the end of it, you're like, right. And, and the people are talking to like, Jim, I don't know what the hell you just said the last five minutes. It was a bunch of words coming out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've had that happen. <laughs> we all have. Right. Yeah. So, so you bring up a good point there, like beginning, middle, end. If you were, if you were tasked with bringing some kind of insights to, to a client, 
and you knew like, what are some of the things that you've learned over your career that you even take for granted as far as like what goes into the structure of that? Yeah. So when, when I was, uh, in pre-college, so element now junior high, high school, I was, um, I was on the newspaper, uh, staff and, um, one, as as part of that, I had the opportunity to go and sit um, with actual newspaper staff at a local newspaper, the Ogden Standard Examiner in Ogden, Utah. And I learned about how to craft a story and the concept they use, like this was back in, this will date me, like literally, you know, you got newspaper, physical newspaper delivered to your house by the paper boy every morning. They pulled out um, an edition of the paper and they started drawing upside down triangles on all the articles. And they said, this is how we think about building a story. We should be able to physically draw an upside down triangle on on this physical print of the story and it will define how we structure the stories. And and I, and I took that lesson to heart and I think it, it applies to both how you write a, a news article and how you write a readout from an analysis that you're doing. Uh, for for your stakeholders and the upside down triangle theory is that you don't bury the lead you have you have your broad summary here's what happened in the first couple paragraphs of the article and and actually one of our clients takes this approach by the way and they've they've um, built it engineered it into their online version so christian science monitor if you've read any of their articles will allow you to look at how they structure this with a little slider that says, do you want the quick read or the long read? And if you click the click, the quick read, it's literally the, the, the top part of that upside down triangle. If you click, I want the long read, read it's the bottom half of the triangle added to it. Um, and so in that top half, the theory is, is that if all your readers do is read the first two or three paragraphs of your story, they'll know, all of the critical details about it. If they stopped reading right there, they know what they need to know. And then for everyone else that wants to go deeper and get into more of the minutia and details that are important, but don't change what the, the narrative is, then they can read all of that. So as you go down, you narrow and narrow and narrow down into more finite kind of details around the story. And, and I think the same thing applies, um, to, to how we do our, our deliverables as a, as an analyst. And then again, I had this experience, even though I had learned that kind of upside down triangle approach to writing a story, I forgot about it when I went to work client side and I wanted to write my story as like a Hollywood blockbuster, you know, like tease them, tease them. And then ta-da at the end, this big reveal. And, and when I did that, it didn't work. You know, and again, executives pulled me aside, like, look, we don't have the time to sit through your two hour epic. You know, we need to have the pertinent details at the top, the first couple slides. Tell me what you're going to tell me. And if all I see are these first two or three slides, I have an idea of the story. And then if we want to dive deeper into the details and start picking things apart, put those later in your deck and narrow and narrow that focus into more finite focus topics. But if all we see is those first couple slides, that should give us the entire story that we need to know. Interesting. I, I, I remember talking about this a couple of years ago now that you brought it up, you know, the, the idea of that, because I think it is, it, it, it is exciting to, to tell that story where there's like teasers and there's little mm -hmm. hints here and there and you add, you end with this huge crescendo. Right. And this, this huge climax of like, this is what we need to do. 
and you have to fight that urge and just stay right out and you're right out of the gate this is what we need to do and why and then here's the additional you know uh, yeah information. I, I mean it's definitely the the path that i buy into and again that kind of we want to create a hollywood story i think are these people in the middle that they don't have bad motives for wanting to do that they just want to be entertainers and they want to create this script of drama and intrigue and and then ta-da, at the end there's a big spoiler and like you know but that's not what businesses need. They need they need reporters, and we need to think mm-hmm. more like delivering the news in a way that it can be consumed in a very efficient way, and it still can be inter- it still needs to be entertaining and engaging and novel, and it needs to have all of that. Otherwise, they're just going to ignore it. But we're not being asked to be Hollywood scriptwriters. We're being asked to be uh, journalists. I think is a better way to describe it. And journalists need to understand the art of story. It's just, again, we need to know our audience. Our audience isn't in for a two-hour, you know, blockbuster movie premiere. They need to skim through, you know, five or six really important articles in, in you know, today's news to fo- to orient themselves to where we're, we're at. And I think that that's where we really need to be on kind of the left-hand side of the spectrum, uh, you know, definitely being uh, opponents of this kind of far other side that wants to use data for evil, you know, kind of taking the narrative and story of the people that want to craft these Hollywood thrillers and, and take that and say, okay, let's figure out how to be entertaining journalists. We're not, you know, trying to entertain you with a lot of uh, Hollywood kind of explosions and all of this stuff. We're trying to entertain you by wrapping a narrative or story around it that makes it meaningful, approachable by you. I'm going to put my dad of a preschooler hat on for a moment. <laughs> yeah. Like the, 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 the TV show that parents are raving about these days, it's, it, it's bluey and mm. not going to lie. Like bluey's on in our house in, in, on a regular basis. But the thing is, is bluey in multiple ways has mastered the art of appealing to not just the kids, but the parents mm-hmm. where the parents can say, um, you know, I don't mind this being on because I could tolerate it or even like it. Like there, there are parents out there that enjoy watching Bluey with their kids. Mm-hmm. And there's some key things to it. The episodes are seven minutes long. You know, like your your typical like animated TV show, like you think of The Simpsons or Family Guy, they're 22 minutes long. Yeah. Your typical animated kids show is 11 minutes long. This is seven minutes. And so the, the episodes are, are easy to consume. The, 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 there is, while it's easy to consume, there is a very deep story to it. Like that, the, the parents pick up, but the lesson is also like put out in front of the kid's face, like right away. So you get hooked on it. And honestly, it's just <laughs> funny as can be. Like yeah. I, I enjoy it. There's a couple episodes I enjoy watching. Yeah. And I, and I, again, I think that goes to show you the importance of understanding your audience and crafting uh, crafting the story and the timeline and the narrative in such a way that you're you're addressing your your audience, and I think as as data professionals, we often forget that we don't think about our audience, you know. So we don't think about it in 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 either of those scenarios. As the Hollywood storyteller, we're not thinking about the needs of our audience, and as just hardcore analysts that are barfing out numbers, we're not thinking about our audience. Um, if we're going to truly be successful, this has to be something that 
that we adopt. Otherwise, we're going to be, again, stuck in the basement, cranking out numbers and doing really, really cool stuff. But the world doesn't get to see it because we're not interesting. So earlier I, I asked you, thinking back in, in your career, where like you know, an example of where it went wrong and it went wrong badly. What about the flip side of that? Like, can you think of times where like the everything went as perfect as could be? You had a, a, a deep level of information, but you had it structured in such a way that what you were talking about resonated incredibly well with with the audience. Yeah, I mean, I think I have lots of, of examples of that. And it's it's one of the things that I feel like I've been able to hone as a skill over my career. And one of the, the pieces of feedback that I've received a lot is that the people say that I have this unique ability to take incredibly complex topics and make them understandable, digestible to, to people that you know, don't understand them. And I've got examples working client side more recently, you know, I've been doing some work with uh, graduate students at East Tennessee State University. And every time I meet with them, I get feedback uh, saying something like, oh, like we thought like data was so like nerdy and cold and unapproachable. But after hearing you talk, like this is exciting. Like we want to learn more. And, and it's those opportunities where you can see that you can take something that, you know, may feel cold and sterile and, and, and communicate it in such a way that you can get people that may have had a very negative view of it and turn them into an, uh, someone that's very excited about, about what you do. And, you know, we've been able to do that with students and we've been able to do that with clients, you know, going in and talking with executives that have been historically frustrated and saying, wait a minute, like, this is what data can do. This is what analytics can do for us. I'm like, yeah, it's like, why have, why have we been so turned off by it over the years? It's like, well, you know, you've been talking to scientists that don't really know how to talk with a CMO or a CEO. And, um, you know, the, these, these conversations can be had, but you need to, you need to find people to understand how to craft that story, that narrative around it to make it approachable, entertaining, you know, it's, it's important. Um, and, and sadly, there are lots of super, super talented people in the analytics space that reject that whole idea. You know, they say, no, 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 the, the, the data is, is so important. We don't want to, we don't want to like take value away from the data by having to think about a, a, a story or trying to make it interesting or entertaining. It should just be interesting because of the way it is. And it is to you and I, it is to them, but it's not to most of the world. And so if we want to get our voice heard, we have to accept that most of the world doesn't think like us, doesn't find numbers and stuff fascinating. So we have to find a way to make it familiar and fascinating. And honestly, that's kind of the approach we took with the book, you know, coming up with the llama, telling the story of data. It's, you know, it's fun. Who doesn't love llamas? You know, it's interesting. So you absolutely. Yeah, the giraffe poodles. The, the giraffe poodles are so awesome. You know, the, absolutely. We can take what we do. We don't have to think about it, dumbing it down. We don't have to think about it as taking away from it because we have to make it interesting this is part of it. This is what we do. And if we want to be successful, we have to embrace this. Otherwise we're going to be stuck in the basement. That's guaranteed. Mm -hmm. You were talking about like making the data interesting. Like this plays totally into to data literacy. Like as someone who understands this information, like it, it's almost like your, your job to make it 
that you no know, that that someone doesn't have to be at your same level. And again, it's it's not dumbing it down. I'm not trying to to repeat what you're saying, but like I think about like with with the concept of data literacy and having this understanding, it's it's putting it in such a way that your audience is drawn to it. You're drawn to it intrinsically because of that that that's your personality, that's your skill level, that's what you've been focused on. But make it so that people are drawn to it and they understand it. Because that's the worst thing is if you just assume that the data is going to be interesting on its own and people are going to be drawn to it and be drawn to the same conclusions as you, you're wrong because someone's going to look at it and who maybe doesn't have the same focus or understanding of how that data was produced, they're going to come up with the complete opposite interpretation. Or you yeah. at least risk that people misinterpreting the information. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, I, I think we have to think of it just as we would any other skill that we would add. Um, you know, whether it's learning a second language, learning to play a musical instrument, it, it's the same kind of process that, that we go down that we're not dumbing it down for our audience. We're breaking it down into a way that people that don't play the piano can play it. You know, if I sat down and said, okay, Jim's never played the piano before and I'm going to sit down and talk to him like he's a 30 year concert pianist and, and, and think he'll just get it. You're not right. You're going to be frustrated. You're gonna be like, this is stupid. I don't want to learn it. But if I understand my audience, I say, okay, here's where Jim is coming from. I can take these incredibly complex techniques, but break them down in such a way that he can, he can grasp it and work with it. You're going to be excited. Like the students are excited about the data they thought was like unapproachable and cold. Like you can break it down in such a way that it's like, wait a minute, I can do this. This is approachable. And that really is what we want to do. You know, as I, I think one of our, um, one of our focuses as analysts, we need to be teachers and we want to be making more analysts. If nothing else, we want to be making people that are more data literate. And the only way we can do that is to teach and the only way we can teach is to break it down into to consumable pieces and not go in and say, okay, you know, you've been studying stats for 30 years. Here's what we're going to do. Like we're going to lose our audience. And then where are we at? We have all this knowledge locked in our head that isn't going anywhere. Yeah. And so the, the perfect transition from there is, is how does sustainable analytics play, play a part with this? I, it's, it's huge. Um, so if, if, you know, if as a analytics team, I've bought into the concept of sustainability, that's great, but I'm not operating in a cycle. It's one thing for me to have that vision, but if I'm working within a company that has low or no data literacy, they're not going to be able to understand, excuse me, understand the importance of why we're making this investment in sustainability. So everything that we want to do is going to be enabled and made easier by having people in the, the uh, organization smarter about how they think about data. And it's it's no different for from sustainability, from anything else that we're trying to do. Um, our goal has to be through education, and that is going to allow us the path to build the things that we want to build. So as we've talked about, we're, we're all in that sustainability has to be the approach the organizations take to their analytics practices. But... If as part of that, we're not building data literacy and, and, and using story to make it approachable by people throughout the organization, it's going to be an incredibly difficult hill to climb. Um, but if we do, getting to the top of this hill, planting the flag that we're, we're thinking sustainably about analytics is absolutely approachable. I, I believe every organization is capable of it. 
but we have to take the right steps. And a big part of that is driving data literacy. And a big part of data literacy is making data interesting and approachable to the masses. And story is a huge part of that. Um, I think that, that that's a good point to, to wrap up for now around data, data and storytelling or storytelling with data, a better way to think about it. Um, because we're, we're going to continue this on with, with other ways like storytelling impacts, you know, individuals in their, in their careers and, you know, even moving outside of just analytics where, where this episode was focused on. Yeah, I, I dig it again, a super important topic. And I'm glad that you, you know, carved out a month or so for us to, to speak about it, especially at the beginning of the year. I think it's something that if we can get behind, um, we can make a major, major difference, not just within our teams or our organizations, but within our communities, within our world. Uh, it's such a powerful, powerful topic. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up there for now. And we will talk to everybody later. See you. See ya. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us. If you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics boot.